matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Gracious God and Father, Lord, we pray now that you would direct our attention toward your word and toward Christ. Lord, we pray that you would grant us the ability to humble ourselves before your word. As we uh, pick up where we left off, five weeks ago and <clears throat> continue to walk through this book of 1 Corinthians. Lord, we are reminded every week as we walk through this book that this is not a letter that deals with problems exclusive to the church in Corinth or to the first century church, but is a book that is so applicable and needful today. Division and disunity continue to damage many churches around the world, to cause division within the church and among members. <clears throat> and the words that are penned here by your servant and apostle Paul are so valuable and useful and applicable. If only you would give us ears to hear and a willingness to obey. So, Father, I pray this morning that the members of our church would not hear my voice, that they would not hear my words, but that they would hear your words and that they would hear the voice of Christ speaking to them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we are now back in 1 Corinthians after our uh, Advent break, um, which uh, obviously, or at least I think so, was a joy to do. I always enjoy Advent season and spending an entire month focusing on the birth of Christ. But I want to take a few minutes then uh, to do a brief recap uh, before we just uh, simply pick up where uh, we, we left off. Um, as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, remember that Paul is the one who plants the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. 
uh, right around the years A.D. 51 to A.D. 52. Sometime during that two-year time frame is when he is in the city of Corinth during his second missionary journey. We know that from the book of Acts chapter 18, and he stays there. We also know that from the book of Acts as well. He stays there for about 18 months, discipling that church before he moves on. He revisits the church during his third missionary journey, and then he writes this letter from the city of Ephesus, which is across the Aegean Sea um, <clears throat> to, the, to the east, across the Aegean Sea. And uh, we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 19, verse 8. There Paul says specifically that I will remain in Ephesus. Uh, so we know that he writes this letter from uh, the city of Ephesus. And this letter is in response to their letter. They had written Paul a letter with <clears throat> questions regarding uh, various issues that they were dealing with within the church <clears throat> and that they were struggling to understand. And we know that from some of the phrases that are used. Uh, for example, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul then says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Right? So he's responding to uh, questions that they have. He'll use that phrase several times in the book when he abruptly changes topics. He abruptly changes topics because he's addressing questions that they have regarding certain subjects. We see that again in chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. So that's Paul's way of saying, now I'm going to address this other issue that you had questions about, and I'll talk about those and help you understand those. So this letter is written in response to their letter, <clears throat> which had a lot of questions in it. And their letter was in response to Paul's first letter. We see that in chapter 5, verse 9. There, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. Well, what does he mean, I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people? What letter is Paul referring to? Well, clearly, there is a letter before 1 Corinthians, right? So 1 Corinthians is more accurately 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is more accurately 3 uh, Corinthians, the third letter to the church in Corinth. Um, but we don't have that first letter. <clears throat> Goodness. I love uh, <clears throat> cedar this time of the year, right? <clears throat> so you all can pray for me. <clears throat> so Paul... <clears throat> his second letter in response <clears throat> to their first letter where they have lots of questions. And the church in Corinth <clears throat> is a very divided church for various reasons. Uh, number one, 
or there's at least five reasons they are very divided. There's a lot of disunity that is happening in the church. <clears throat> Number one, they are, they are a young church. They are young believers, um, very young, because they did not grow up with any kind of Christian background, um, as many of us do in the United States. And uh, so they are still learning about Christianity, <clears throat> dealing with the basics. Second reason is that Corinth is a city that is ripe with immorality and paganism. And so they are still <clears throat> greatly influenced by that, right? They still live in the city of Corinth, and they are still uh, struggling with that. Thirdly, Corinth <clears throat> is a very proud city that is uh, rich with Greek and Roman culture and philosophy. Um, <clears throat> and so the people of Corinth were very proud. They were proud people. Uh, they, they, they stand on the shoulders of all of the great uh, <clears throat> Roman historians and Greek philosophers that have come before them. And so as a church, <clears throat> they still have that as sort of a part of their DNA, if you they're a proud church. They're, a, they're full of pride. They think that they are truly a lot better off than all the other churches that Paul has planted. They're more mature. They're wiser. Number four, they are still greatly influenced by the culture, as I said, <clears throat> more than they realize. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And this is true even of Christians today. We are often far more affected by the culture than we recognize. We are often like fish who are wet and don't even know it, or fish who are in water and don't even know that we're wet. Um, and so they are greatly affected by the culture. Fifthly, above all, <clears throat> and this is probably the biggest reason there's so much division and disunity within the church, is that they are not closely following the teachings of Christ, <clears throat> the teachings of Paul, or the Holy Scripture. I mean, the bottom line is they simply are not holding closely to what they've been taught and to what they can read and discern from the Old Testament. <clears throat> yes, the sacrificial law no longer applies, and certainly Paul would have made that clear to them. But the law in the Old Testament is very much still applicable in the Christian life. Not entirely, but it still has value. I always appreciate <clears throat> a quote by Martin Luther. When asked, what is the purpose of the law in the Christian life? Luther said, the law of God is like a stick that God used to beat me with. And afterward, I learned to walk with. So we don't depend on the law for salvation. The law drives us to Christ. It convicts us of our sin. But once we place faith in Christ, that doesn't mean there's no need for the law. Paul will make that argument very clearly in Romans chapter 7. The law is still good. The law is what convicts us of sin as Christians and drives us to the cross of Christ for grace. Hence, the theme of this epistle is the church united, <clears throat> as you see in your bulletin. 
The church of Jesus Christ should be a united church. Because a church that is not united, a church that is not united in mind, united in heart, united in spirit, is a denial of the gospel. That's what Paul has been arguing. It, what, it, it is what he will continue to argue. It is a denial of the gospel. It tarnishes the name of Christ. And thirdly, it is a sign of spiritual unhealth. When there is division and disunity among members within the church. And so through this book, Paul systematically deals with each issue that is causing division within the church in Corinth. <clears throat> Ironically, many of these issues are still in the churches today. And so he systematically deals with each issue causing division, and he points them back to Christ every time, points them back to Christ, and points them back to God's word. Because in the end, their problem ultimately is that they keep taking their eyes off of Christ they keep taking their eyes off of God's word, and they keep looking elsewhere for solutions to their problems rather than simply looking here. And so we see that in chapter 1, for example. <clears throat> Paul deals with the issue of them picking their favorite teacher. He tells them makes no sense. You know, one says, you know, a few say, I, I follow Peter, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul. And then you've got, the, you've got the holy remnant, right, that says, well, I follow Christ. They're the only ones doing the right thing. And Paul says, that doesn't make any sense because they should only follow Christ. And being boastful in themselves and about who they follow makes no sense. And we see that today, don't we? We see oftentimes divisions taking place within the church because everybody has their own favorite Bible teacher, their own favorite podcast teacher, their own favorite church that they follow online, and why can't we be more like that church? Why can't we be more like that pastor or that Bible teacher? And it creates division within the church. Sometimes it happens when members within the church will choose their favorite elders. I listen to what he has to say. I go to this person, and I think he's right. I think the others are wrong. I'm going to take sides. This is where the responsibility of unity in the church does ultimately land on the elders. If there is disunity within a church, it is primarily the fault of the elders within the church. In chapter 2, he focuses on Christ crucified and reminds them that they ought to be seeking to know God. That if they will focus on Christ, seek to focus on God and Christ and him crucified, that that is where unity comes from. Chapter 2, verse 2, he starts by saying, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's Paul's way of saying, focus on Christ and disunity will dissipate. In chapter 3, Paul discourages them from giving Paul and Apollos more credit than they deserve. Because in doing that, it creates division. 
If you remember, Paul tells them at the beginning of that chapter, look, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. For you to put me on a pedestal or Apollos on a pedestal is just ridiculous. Paul says, we're just laborers in the fields. Give all glory to God. In, number, in chapter 4, he strongly urged them not to add or subtract anything from God's word. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Follow God's word. Why? That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Because you see, that's what's happening in the church in Corinth. They're going outside of God's word. They're getting their information, their education, their influence from somewhere else. And then they're coming back together and saying, well, I know better than you because of my source. If they're all just following God's word, then they're all working out of the same manual. So Paul says, stick to the word of God. And then in chapter 5, he tells them that not dealing with serious sin within the church will inevitably cause division and disunity and will destroy the church. And so now, in chapter 6, Paul has to deal with believers within the same church taking one another to court. He deals with this issue by making four points, four arguments Paul is making to the church in Corinth, why this ought not to be done within the church at Corinth. And his first point is in verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous? Instead of the saints. So Paul is shocked. You hear the language. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law against another? How can this be? That Christians within the same church, within the same body, the body of Christ, are dragging each other to court. This is unbelievable in the mind of Paul. In his mind, this is contradictory to the unity of the gospel. It's antithetical, but it also indicates that they are still thinking like the world. Particularly, they're still thinking like Corinthians. Because there is historical evidence to show that in Corinth, in the first century, talk, taking someone to court was a way of boosting one standing within the community. Remember back then, courts oftentimes were open forums. People could gather and they could, it was a form of entertainment. Let's go see what's happening in court. We'll watch the debates, you know, the great oratory speeches that go back and forth. And if you win your case, that can boost your standing within the community. For example, one biblical scholar I read said this, quote, lawsuits were typically initiated not merely to resolve legitimate social grievances, but also to further the social status of the litigants, close quote. 
Do you want to boost your reputation, be seen as a powerful person in Corinth? You take somebody to court. They are still thinking like the world. Within the church, you've done something that I don't like. You know what? I'll see you in court. Well, fine, right? That's what we do in Corinth. Paul says that's not the way the church should handle their disputes. This makes no sense for several reasons that he outlines here in four points. So first, look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? God's people will someday judge all humanity. Paul reminds them, which he obviously picks up from Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. It's just one verse. It's not a crystal clear verse, but notice what it says. Likely, this is what Paul has in mind. Daniel chapter 7, 21 and 22. As I look, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came, listen, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. To possess the kingdom in ancient times implies authority, which implies the authority to judge. Oftentimes, kings in the ancient world were both the ruler and the judge, the ultimate judge of all of the laws that uh, governed his kingdom. So that seems to be the implication that maybe what Paul is talking about. We do know that rabbinic scholars later developed this idea in the apocryphal books. It's mentioned in various places that the other uh, people of God will someday judge all of humanity. But that idea is picked up in the New Testament very clearly. Matthew chapter 19, for example, I'll just one verse, verse 28. <clears throat> Matthew 19, 28, Jesus talking to the disciples says this, and he said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, talking to the disciples, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So clearly the disciples somehow and in some way are going to judge uh, along with Christ but this is not just true of the disciples, it's also true of the church as well, because Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 2. He says this very same thing <clears throat> to the church in Thyatira and also to the church in Laodicea. Revelation 2, 26 and 27, Jesus says this, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, that is the one who remains faithful to Christ, to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself, I have received authority from my Father. And to the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says this, the one who conquers, I will grant him, that is overcome the trials of this life, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Paul reminds the church in Corinth, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
Paul's point is that because Christians will someday judge all of humanity for them to go to unbelieving judges in order to resolve their differences makes about as much sense as two of our Supreme Court justices not being able to resolve some conflict between them, and so they're going to go to a local municipal court to help them resolve this. That wouldn't add a lot of confidence to us, right? If they can't solve their own problems, we're in trouble. Paul says, don't you know that you're going to someday judge the world? Why would you go to the unbelieving world in order to resolve your own differences? So point number one, to be more clear, is because Christians have been enlightened by the gospel and have God's word and the Holy Spirit, we should, we should be able to resolve our own differences and not go to the world. Point number two that Paul makes is in the second half of verse two and into verse three. Paul says, and if the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So first of all, when Paul says um, that we are to judge uh, angels, do you not know that we are to judge the angels? It's, It's difficult to know where Paul is getting that from. There's no other reference in the New Testament about us judging angels. Um, Of course, Paul being an apostle, he doesn't really need an Old Testament reference, right? Uh, He doesn't have to have another scripture reference. This may be coming directly from God, but it could also be that Paul is simply logically deducing the fact that if Christians are going to judge the world and angels are lesser beings than humans, right? Human beings, clearly, Genesis chapter 1, are the pinnacle of God's creation Because humans are made in the image of God, angels are not. So if we are going to judge humanity and angels are below humans in terms of um, uh, importance and value, so to speak, in terms of the order of creation, then it stands to reason that we're going to judge angels as well. But what's important is Paul's use of the phrase trivial cases. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? The New American Standard uses that they translate the Greek as constitute the smallest law courts could be translated that way. The New King James says the smallest matters. Um, Any of those would be accurate. The point is that Paul has in mind uh, essentially civil cases. When he uses the phrase trivial cases, or when we talk about uh, the smallest matters, or when we talk about uh, constituting the smallest law courts, he has in mind civil cases and not criminal cases. In other words, Paul has in mind um, issues or conflict within the church um, uh, involving uh, property possession or things like breach of contract, or property damage, or fraud, or injury, 
um, etc. Right? We want to be clear here because Paul is not here saying, Paul is not saying that believers should never go to the civil authorities for any kind of problem that arises within the church. If that was the case, he'd be contradicting what he says in Romans chapter 13 about the purpose of our government and civil authorities, that they've been instituted by God to punish the wrongdoer, right? So Paul makes that very clear. I point this out because this is a very important lesson, I think, for this church and many churches to get, is that churches should go to the civil authorities regarding matters of criminal conduct, rape, child molestation, pedophilia, physical abuse, etc., etc. You see, because too many churches end up on the news because they miss this point. Because what they describe as dealing with an issue in-house, the world describes as a cover-up. There was a discovery of sexual abuse within the church, and they covered it up. No, we were dealing with it in-house. Wrong answer. So we need to be clear that churches can and should resolve their civil differences within the church, but not matters of criminal conduct. Paul is talking about trivial matters, right? The little things that can divide members one against another. And so Paul's question in the second half of verse 2 is really a rhetorical question requiring a negative response. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? No, the answer should be no, we are not incompetent to try trivial cases. We should be able to do that. Churches are competent and should be competent because of God's word and the Holy Spirit. Paul says that regarding himself, regarding his own apostolic ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Listen to what Paul says. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul says, I believe I am sufficient to minister the new covenant to you and to teach you the things of God, not because of anything in myself, but simply because God has made me sufficient. From the Holy Spirit, from the word of God, Paul has confidence that what he is saying, based on Scripture, is true and valid, right. There are other verses that tell us that. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, listen, through the knowledge of him who called us. Through the knowledge of God, the more we study the things of God, then the more we are equipped as believers, as a church, to deal 
with any issue that arises within the church. And we ought to feel and know, be confident in that confidency. Sadly, often Christians dealing with a civil matter between themselves and another church member end up in a court, often based on the advice of their own church. I've read articles talking about this. Member in the church dealing with a significant issue that may have some legal implications. It's not a criminal matter. They go to the church leadership. What do I do about this? Well, that sounds like a criminal issue. That sounds like a legal issue. You might want to get a lawyer and deal with that. Paul would say, no. Why would you go to the secular world to help you resolve conflict within the church? Because if we're all believers, if we're all Christians, then the three of us ought to get together, right? The elder and the two families or the two individuals. And we ought to be able to resolve this as Christians and get through this. And if they can't, then there is a deeper problem within the church. There is a deeper problem within the church. You know, there's a legitimate, I think, modern-day practical application to this because we see this not just with lawsuits, because we don't really hear about that that often within the church, right? Um, it's a little shocking even to us that the church in Corinth were dragging each other to court. But oftentimes where we see this is when Christians are dealing with personal, emotional issues. And they go outside the church for counsel. Because they just think the church can't help me. They're great at teaching me Bible stories, but I got a real life problem here. And I've got to go to someone outside the church who knows what they are talking about. And I'm not just talking about secular counselors. I'm talking about Christian counselors as well. Biblical counselors, if you want to use that phrase. And I know I've got to be careful here and tread lightly. I am always misunderstood when I get onto this topic. But it is my job to give you biblical guidance, uh, even if I get blowback for it. Let me be clear about something when it comes to biblical counselors, Christian counselors, whatever you want to call them. There is a good form of it, and there is a bad form of it. And I'm talking about the bad form. Let me give you an illustration to help you understand if there is a Christian in the church who has the desire to go and seek courses on biblical counseling, they want to get certified, maybe even get a, a college degree in Christian counseling because their desire is to come back into the church and to minister to their fellow saints, to help the elders minister to their fellow saints, to, 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 to counsel individuals under the authority of the local church, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for someone to just want more training in that area. The danger is with the Christians who want to do that and get all the, the training so that they can go downtown and set up shop somewhere outside of the local church, outside of the authority of the church, 
because they believe that if Christians need help, they need to be able to come to me, someone who actually knows the Bible and can help them. Anyone that encourages a Christian to draw them away from their shepherds, that's simply a bad idea. That is a bad idea, and it is dangerous. Because at the end of the day, according to Acts chapter 20, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the elders of the church are the ones who are ultimately responsible for the spiritual health of every member of that church, not Christian counselors. Does that make sense? Sadly, in that area, we see this happening a lot. I need help. I need conflict resolution with this other person. It's not a legal matter, but we need help resolving this conflict. So what are we going to do? We're going to go outside the church because we don't think that the church can help us. But the Bible makes clear that if you're a believer, and this applies to every believer, if you're a believer and you truly have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you, and you've got the word of God, and you know the word of God, you are capable and competent of helping your fellow Christian resolve their issues in life. And certainly a biblical church should as well. Thus, Paul's second point is that the Holy Spirit and God's word make us individuals, shepherds, elders, and the church confident to judge matters of this life. All matters, according to the Apostle Paul. Paul's third point, in verses 4 to 6 of our text. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Those who have no standing in the church. In other words, Paul's point is that for two Christians to go to a secular law court or to some secular entity outside of the church to resolve their issues, or I would say to go outside of the church to resolve their issues is like two American citizens going to the Supreme Court of Mexico and saying, will you resolve this for us? They would say, you don't have any standing in this court. And we don't have any standing in your conflict. That's what Paul's point is. I say this to your shame. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? What is interesting is that Paul, <laughs> Paul is starting to get harsh with them now. Because he says back in chapter 4, verse 14, remember this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to shame you. But then notice what he says in verse 5. I say this to your shame. I am trying to shame you now. You ought to be embarrassed of yourself. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Can it be that the church in Corinth 
that boast about being so wise. They are so prideful. They've got it all together. Seriously, there is nobody in your church that can resolve these disputes? Paul says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. So now he is shaming them. Hence, shaming is not always bad. Right? I'm getting that from Paul. Depends on how you do it and why you do it. Paul certainly was not sinning in his words and in his approach to the church in Corinth. Thus, his third point is if there's no one in the church wise enough to walk members through the Bible and help them with their problems, then the church is spiritually unhealthy. The church is spiritually unhealthy. If a church cannot resolve its own conflicts within the church. Paul's fourth point, and I'll conclude in about five minutes here or less. Paul's fourth point is found in verse 7 and verse 8, primarily verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You've already been defeated. If you take somebody in the church to court, even if you win, Paul says, you both lose. Why? Because it's a denial of the gospel. It tarnishes the name of Christ. It demonstrates that the church is unhealthy. How can we as Christians proclaim that the gospel has the power to transform lives and to unite people from every tribe, nation, and background, and yet here we are dragging people to court? Paul says, you've both lost already. You've been defeated if you do that. And then he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? See, because the church ought to be striving always for unity. Unity should be the one goal that is penultimate in the mind of every believer within the church. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain unity, striving for it. Yet, the 17th century Puritan pastor Richard Baxter hit the nail on the head when he wrote, quote, it is a pitiful case when the poor afflicted church of Christ that almost all the members cry out against division and yet cause and increase division while they speak against it, close quote. He's right. So oftentimes in many evangelical churches, the very same people who cry out against division and scream we ought to be unified are the very ones who are creating division within the church. Or at minimum, they are cheering on those who are creating division within the church. Yeah, you're right. Stand for your rights. Don't take that from them. Tell them who's boss. Paul is likely drawing from his own instructions in Romans chapter 12, for example, verses 17 uh, and 19. 
Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, if I can get there. Romans 12, verses 17 to 19, Paul writes this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never, you hear that language? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Likely when Paul wrote that, he was drawing from the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. Don't resist the one who is evil. See, Christians today, we read that and we say, well, he means most of the time don't resist. No, Jesus says, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You see, Christians are great on quoting these kinds of passages until it actually happens. Until someone actually slaps you on the cheek and then the fight is on. I'll ask for forgiveness later. Right? Until someone actually wrongs you and then, oh, yeah, payback is, you know what? Oh, yeah, I've read Romans chapter 12. I'll ask for forgiveness later. Or when Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather just allow yourself to be defrauded? All right. You know what? You're wrong. I know you're wrong. I could take you to court. I could take you to the church, but I'm not. I'm not. It's not a big deal. Christians love these verses until we're called to obey them. The lesson that Paul is giving to the church in Corinth is the lesson that applies to this church and every church. Follow God's word. Not just in theory, not just with your words, but actually when it happens. And this will create unity within the church. In the end, the inability of the church to resolve her own conflict is a denial of the gospel. Because it means we read passages like this, and when we don't live them out, you know what we're saying to the world? I haven't actually been transformed. When we read passages like I've just read and we don't live them out, what we're saying to the world is that everybody in here is a hypocrite and we haven't actually been transformed. We say we have, but when the rubber hits the road, we act just like the world does. When the church cannot resolve her own conflicts, it is a denial of the gospel, it tarnishes the name of Christ and is a sign of spiritual unhealth within the church. Because if unity, if unity is only talk without real feet, then we are just delusional. It's simply an illusion. There's no such thing as unity if it doesn't have real feet. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father,